From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Music venues closed, theaters sitting empty. Today, gauging the impact of the pandemic on Colorado's arts scene and how artists are getting creative. Then, teacher Jennifer Groves is throwing in the towel on Telluride after 20 years. Housing's just too expensive, so she's moving back east. I can get a two-bedroom for what I'm paying now for a one-bedroom, you know, so it seems it's a little more approachable. How the pandemic is making the high country housing crunch worse. Also, what to do with the glut in your vegetable garden. There's an app for that. Scrolling down, I'm donating tomatoes. And I'm going to be donating two pounds of tomatoes. And an album about climate anxiety. Friend, climb the wall. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Just how hard has the pandemic hit Colorado's art scene? There's a new assessment out, and we promised those numbers in just a few moments. But artists being artists faced with adversity, they still manage to create. Which is why we'll actually begin on a golf course. That's where a Boulder theater company sets its latest production to keep actors and spectators safe. But it's also part of the storyline in The Rough Written and directed by Jessica Jackson of Grand Junction, the show unfolds at Legacy Ridge Golf Course in Westminster. This is a very challenging time to be producing theater. Luckily, the specific site of a golf course lends itself to social distancing. The audience travels completely in golf carts, keeping them automatically six feet away from each other. We had to socially distance our actors, so... Most of the actors are sprinkled along the different holes of the golf course. But yeah, we the whole thing was written in order to be a socially distant site-specific show. And so short stories and fables unfold at different holes. A funny and ancient Scotsman obsessed with the goddess of stick and ball games leads the way. And he requires some translation, which you hear through headphones. Stick of the ball and your love of sport. I didn't see your sticks, now your balls. Hey, raise your wee hand as if a stick you've got. Raise your hand if you brought a stick. Ah, <laughs> oh, now your balls ain't neither. You look a sorry bunch of make it itch just as what you look. You appear unprepared. Oh, hey, the tightest golfers to donner your ball hockey. Slowest boy will dump you across the course. Better golfers are bottlenecking while you're trying to dunch your ball in the wee hole. I am... Disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Laugh out loud funny, but The Rough explores some serious topics. Accessibility versus exclusivity. Wildness versus tameness. Jackson says she explored these themes with the cast and crew beforehand in brainstorming sessions, where she'd give them prompts. What about us is wild? What about us has been tamed? When we say we're going out in nature, are we going out in the wilderness or are we going out onto a landscape space, both of which can be absolutely beautiful experiences. So that was one theme. And then the second theme is we wanted to hold the tension between golf's history of discrimination and all the great things 
that golf can do for people and its growing accessibility, especially on a public golf course like Legacy Ridge that makes it pretty affordable to play there. The show is a partnership with the City of Westminster to bring more arts, more magic to public spaces, Jackson says. But also the city's public spaces have so much magic in them, too. Even like you know, we don't think of a golf course as being a place where they, where magic can happen or like really whimsical stories be told. But, you know, when we looked into the history of golf and when we, we, we kind of asked all these questions about wildness, all of a sudden the magic started crawling out of the rough and we got these stories and we got a an ancient Scotsman and the goddess of stick and ball games and all of this fun stuff started happening. The Rough from the Catamounts runs through September 6th at Legacy Ridge Golf Course. And it's a show completely shaped by the pandemic. Let's hear more now about the financial impact of COVID-19 on the arts from my colleague, Exandra McMahon. Hi, Exandra. Hey, Ryan. You've learned that Colorado's Creative Industries estimates a $2.6 billion loss between April and July. $2.6 billion. That seems gargantuan to me. Yeah, it does. But keep in mind that that's not just looking at lost revenue from performance arts or visual arts, but also culinary arts. So any restaurant that's born and bred in Colorado is counted in that. Advertising and design also falls under creative industries, as well as architecture, film, fashion. It's a wide net. All right. But put this number, $2.6 billion, into some context. I mean, like in a typical year, how much would this sector bring in? In 2019, the creative industries brought in $31.6 billion in sales revenue. So this loss makes up about 8% of total revenue. Is there a dimension of this industry that's getting hit especially hard? Yes. Margaret Hunt, the director of the state arts agency Colorado Creatives Industry, told me they're most concerned about music, theater, dance, and the visual arts. So just in that sector alone, we lost about... 31,780 jobs and about $823 million losses in sales revenue. You know, and of course, it's because live performances, both music and theater, you know, it's just been extraordinarily hard hit. And probably large group gatherings aren't going to happen until this pandemic is under control. Okay, so that's a picture of that aspect of this industry. What about for the industry as a whole? Well, more than 59,000 jobs across the state have been lost, according to CCI. Any good news, Alexandra? <laughs> yeah, I have some good news. I spoke to Deborah Jordy. She's the executive director of SCFD, the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, which uses sales tax from seven front-range counties to fund arts and cultural organizations. And she said things are looking better for SCFD than she thought they would at this point. I guess we've been encouraged, given that we thought we would see a much larger drop in sales tax revenue. All that said, I. I would be remiss if not saying, you know, it's taken an incredible toll. The, the pandemic has taken an incredible toll on, you know, so many sectors and lives and certainly in arts and culture, on jobs, on operating revenue, the organizations and donations. And it's heartbreaking and sobering. But we are encouraged that people are buying and our tax revenue is not down significantly. But Jordy adds there has been a 9% drop in the sales tax that they normally get in an average year. 
How will those effects trickle down to the organizations that the SCFD funds? And, you know, they're big and small. Right. Well, Jordy said organizations that qualify for SCFD funding will still get their portion next year. The pandemic doesn't change that. The state legislature can't change that. But what is up in the air is how much organizations will get, because it really depends on if consumers are buying and generating that sales tax. Jordy said they're giving organizations conservative projections right now. I'd rather under-promise and over-deliver. That's what we'll do this year. You know, that's why we ratcheted down the budget this year, and that's what we'll do next year. So in a sense, it's harder for them to to plan, possibly, but I think it's better to be realistic and not over-promise when we don't know what the economy is going to do. Okay, we've been talking thus far about the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, so that's mainly a picture of Metro Denver in the Front Range. But what is the scene in other parts of Colorado? I mean, I think especially of rural areas, how the arts are holding up there. Right. Well, the Front Range is definitely feeling the biggest impact just because it's such a central hub for arts and culture organizations. But Margaret Hunt told me she's noticed an interesting trend in some of the more rural parts of the state. Because of COVID, And because the outbreaks are more concentrated in urban areas, we're seeing movement into rural communities with more remote workers. So, for example, our Space to Create project in Trinidad is now open and leasing up. And so they've already got, they've already incorporated that idea of creative industries as their community and economic development strategy. So they're ready to receive people. They're ready to receive creative workers. So basically, there's a chance that COVID-19 winds up boosting arts districts in rural parts of the state, but we'll see. Alexandra, thanks so much. No problem. CPR's Alexandra McMahon with an update on how COVID-19 has hit arts and culture in Colorado. Coming up, a related story. Just as the pandemic results in joblessness, it's also putting a crunch on housing in the high country. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. In mountain resort towns, the latest victim of COVID-19 is affordable housing. We're going to focus now on Telluride, where the pandemic has made it extra tough for local workers to find rentals. That's because housing is being snapped up by city dwellers fleeing long term to their favorite mountain communities. Amy Levick uh, directs a Telluride nonprofit called the Trust for Community Housing. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. I think buyers and renters had hoped that the pandemic might cool down the market, but quite the opposite is happening. Help us understand the trends in Telluride. Well, we had thought that um, since there were restrictions on short-term rentals, um, that more units might be switched over to to long-term rental use, and that's not the case. Um, With the number of people coming here, buying housing, um, some units have been lost, and then the other thing is that people just want to be here. They, they 
they like the the atmosphere and what it offers them and they're willing to rent until they can find something to buy and they come with much more resources than most locals have do you have any numbers to illustrate these trends well um we had um, 106 units under contract in the town of Telluride and another 134 under contract um, as of August 1st. And that's compared to um, about 80 units in the past uh, five months in the town of Telluride and, uh, and about 80 um, some odd in, in the region. So it's a significant increase in the amount of houses that are being bought. And then the other thing is um, talking with realtors, they have clients come in and say, I've got $5,000, $10,000 a month that I can spend. Um, locals can't spend that much. <laughs> so there's oh. kind of a bidding war going on on rentals. Your trust for community housing uh, has some other shock- shocking numbers in Telluride. The average sale price of a home in the area is $1.5 million. Okay, so you need, need to earn roughly $375,000 to afford that. But the average yeah. wage is just over forty-one thousand. I mean, how how can the trust get around such glaring financial discrepancies? Well, we have partners in this, and a lot of credit goes to the town of Telluride, San Miguel County, and the town of Mountain Village, who have a very active deed-restricted housing um, program. They build housing that's deed-restricted according to um, you know people for, for people working here. Um, whose income might not be able to compete in the free market. So that's part of it. Um, We also have a program that gives people um, a grant for getting into rental um, housing and into for sale housing. So, you know, we help where we can. (laughs) Help me understand the grant when you say we have a grant for people who get into that. What does that mean? Well, it means that somebody has found um, a rental unit that they can move into, but maybe they don't have... Um, all the money that they need for deposits will help that. Um, if somebody has found a deed-restricted housing unit and they're stretching to get into that, we'll help with the down payment. So we do what we can. I see. Um, Grants yeah. even for the deed-restricted stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's the way things are here. Jennifer Groves, a longtime teacher and life coach in Telluride, has experienced these housing problems firsthand. She's a renter. And after two decades, she's preparing to move back east where she can afford a cheaper and larger place. In my condo building where there are probably about 55 condos, just in the past month, I know of six that have sold. And those are just the ones I know of. So we are certainly seeing a big influx of people coming here for a good part of the summer and many people purchasing real estate over this summer. And that seems to be directly related to the pandemic and people, like you're saying, getting out of an urban situation and wanting to be in, you know, in a smaller town. Amy, do you, do you feel that's a loss? Oh, it's a huge loss. I mean, you know, all, all different uh, kinds of people who, who make up community are just leaving. And, um, you know, I, I feel for them. It's fascinating because it's not just luxury properties being snapped up. I mean, you're talking in some cases about tiny apartments that might still have shag carpet and bedrooms the size of a walk-in closet. What does that tell us about who's coming to Telluride on a more permanent basis? 
I think they're people who just want to be out of their current situation, you know, whether it's a dense city living or, um, you know, some other situation. They just want a different lifestyle, um, partially motivated by the pandemic. And it's definitely going to change our community. Um, I mean, it's nice to know that there are people living in some of the empty houses, but um, the displacement is, 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 is a real issue. Brad Zaporski is a Telluride utility company worker and actually a board member for your Trust for Community Housing. And uh, he's experienced what you mentioned, a kind of bidding war. So he recently moved from a small unit he owns in town to a larger property that he bought outside of Telluride. And he's been told he could sell or rent those properties for inflated amounts. We were approached by several different people just letting us know what they thought they could get us for rent or similar situation for people that wanted to stay for the winter. And again, it was in the realm of two to three times what we would have thought we would have you know, done a long-term rental to a local family for. Meanwhile, it's interesting to note that apartment vacancies in Manhattan recently reached their highest level since 2006. And the number of properties under contract in Telluride and places like Aspen and Jackson, Wyoming, are double the norm. So have you been able to make any direct connections between big city exiles and the hot real estate market in your town? We're working on it, Ryan. Um, You know, my board is very interested in seeing us do outreach to some of the new people that are coming here. And... um, and seeing, uh, just making sure that they understand how important community is. That's why they're attracted here. Um, you know, the, the kind of things that go on, the social social situation. And, um, you know, I think they, they need to understand, um, you know, just how fragile that is. I also think that there's a risk here of demonizing and that you probably want to avoid that uh, in, in the spirit of creating community. But I think, I think we often see a tension in Colorado. Uh, between folks who've been here for a while and newcomers. So that that's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance. Um, you know, I don't think that we want to exclude anyone from involvement in our organization. I, I just think that they need to understand um, how important community is. And, um, you know, creative solutions can come out of that. You've lived in Telluride for 33 years. You've been the mayor and a county commissioner Uh, And two years ago, you decided to turn your attention to housing and you formed the trust. What was happening then, you know, prior to the pandemic that prompted you to take out this mantle? Housing has always been, affordable housing has always been an issue in Telluride. And I think that um, we were seeing some of the similar trends that we're seeing now um, with people being displaced and um, a lack of housing, but it's accelerated now. So I don't think we're ever going to get ahead of the curve, but um, the more attention we put to it, the better off we're going to be. And the more people we involve, the better off we're going to be. Amy, you mentioned the deed-restricted housing, the affordable housing in Telluride and neighboring Mountain Village. And indeed, they have a strong record of affordable housing. There are currently more than 1,200 deed-restricted units in and around Telluride and Mountain Village. But how many more do you need? Like, what would be the ideal number? Well, um, when the when our housing needs assessment was done a couple of years ago, we identified about 450 units that were needed. And that number is just increasing. I mean, it's 300 to 350 a year um, for the next 10 years. 
oh, each year it grows by that amount. And is there any yeah. any thought that that would be met? Well, as long as our economy is booming, as long as there is a need for workers, as long as there are more businesses and, ch- and jobs being added, it's going to be tough, but we're working on it. Telluride, the ski resort, plans to open in some capacity this winter. That has to play into this, too. Yeah, um, things are very fluid right now. We're waiting to find out um, at what capacity they're going to be opening, and that will determine you know, kind of a ripple effect of how many jobs are needed. So, you know, the governor's involved, um, the county's involved. There are a lot of other factors that, are, that will determine um, at what capacity they'll open. Well, I'm so grateful for your time. That's Amy Levick. She's executive director of the Trust for Community Housing in Telluride. You know, in a previous show, we talked about what these pandemic relocations mean for mountain schools. When families move with kiddos, you can check that conversation out in the Colorado Matters podcast for August 10th. Housing advocates have warned that a tidal wave of evictions could force countless Coloradans from their homes in the coming months. That hasn't happened yet, but CPR's Andrew Kenny found that renters and landlords are getting nervous as the next payment date approaches. Landlords have filed more than 1,600 removal cases in Colorado since Governor Jared Polis' ban on evictions expired in June. But that's still less than half of the pre-pandemic eviction rate. The Colorado Apartment Association says it's a sign of success. The industry group argues that property owners have been able to negotiate repayment plans with renters who have lost their jobs. But many tenants also had help paying their bills from the government. Here's Tony Julianell, president of Atlas Real Estate. Yeah, we've, we've been really fortunate over these last several months to see um, the stimulus that was put in place, the CARES Act uh, that expanded um, unemployment benefits. Uh, for those that were impacted by COVID-19, uh, really work, I think, the way that they were intended and uh, help people be able to meet their basic needs, including their rent payments. Those unemployment benefits dropped sharply this month, and the next emergency supplement won't arrive for weeks, which has Julianelle worried about September. This is definitely going to be the stress test, if you will, uh, without those uh, levels of support that we've experienced over the last several months. Emergency federal protections that were blocking some evictions also expired in recent weeks. That means almost all renters who fell behind during the pandemic can be evicted if they don't repay in full. And for the Coloradans who have gone through it, the pandemic is only making eviction more difficult. I feel a lot of anger. I feel um, I, I feel a lot of loss. Here's Catherine Azer, age 70, who lost her home after her work with horses disappeared. I'm angry that in the middle of a deadly pandemic that people would put money over helping a person who's high risk. And um, it just feels wrong. And it feels like we don't have enough in place to protect people like me. And there are a lot of us. Azer is now living at a hotel in Louisville, hoping she has enough savings to find somewhere more permanent. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. It's that time of year when you start hearing about the zucchini problem. You know, you grew too much zucchini and you can't give any away because everybody else is in the same boat. My garden is really kind of uh, massive and overgrown. 
So I have to like practically climb into it to harvest everything. That is florist and backyard gardener Pamela Talley of Denver. She wants to give her extra produce to people who need it, especially with the economic hit of the pandemic. Well, there's an app for that, Fresh Food Connect. It links folks like Tally with local hunger groups. She picks her vegetables, then opens the app. Scrolling down, I'm donating tomatoes. And I'm going to be donating two pounds of tomatoes. Okay, add. Says, thanks for your donation. She is instructed to leave the produce on her porch for pickup. When we reached her on the phone later, Tally imagined who might benefit from her bounty. Gosh, the taste of a homegrown tomato, there's truly nothing like it, and there's truly nothing better. And if a senior in my community can taste that this summer because of me and because of Fresh Food Connect, that's pure joy that I am bringing into somebody's kitchen that they wouldn't otherwise have. Tally will donate a few pounds of veggies a week, which will add up by the end of the season. Multiply that by lots of other gardeners in her neighborhood, and it can mean thousands of pounds of fresh food, says Amy Moore Shipley, operations director at Denver Food Rescue. We're able to make an extra program in the growing season based on this food. So that's anywhere from 20 to 50 people a week getting an extra healthful, local, more nutrient-dense produce that they might not otherwise have access to. And she says her organization can always use more backyard bounties. This is historically a very untapped resource for traditional food pantries or food banks. Denver Food Rescue is one of a number of Metro nonprofits using this app. More are coming on board. There are currently over 100 zip codes plugged in over three states Helen Katich is the CEO of Fresh Food Connect. And Helen, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I guess first off, do you think there are more people planting gardens now because of the pandemic? Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I uh, it feels like a dream back in March, doesn't it? <sighs> um, we were told to stay home. And I remember going into the grocery store on one of those first uh, first weeks in March and seeing the shelves more barren than what I was used to going through the grocery store. And I think at that point, there was really a trigger that happened for a lot of Americans and um, and folks across the country that were used to seeing something and then had that taken away sometimes for the first time. Sometimes that was a occurrence that they'd experienced before. But at that time, we also saw um, kind of this resurgence of the Victory Garden movement, you know, about this. Um, Victory Garden movement happened during World War One and World War Two, And it was this time where Americans were encouraged to grow food in their backyards and both in urban and rural communities to provide for their families, but also donate their produce, their surplus bounty to the war movement at that time. And at that time, we saw, um, I think it was close to 18 million gardens during the Victory Gardens movement pop up. And um, that story really had a resurgence back in early spring and beginning of summer. And that inspired more of our senior gardeners to participate in local efforts, mentoring new gardeners for the first time. So this was a mix of people wanting to grow their own food. I mean, I remember how nervous we all were about what the supply chain would be. Mm -hmm. But I also imagine that people simply are spending more time at home and thus have more time to garden? Do you think that's true? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we, a lot of us were turning to, especially during the stay-at-home order um, and the safer-at-home uh, 
suggestions of what we were going to do. How are we going to get out of the house and how are we really going to ground in? So I think there's um, there's this piece around, yeah, that uh, nervousness around the supply chain, but also how do we keep ourselves well and yep. how do we keep ourselves in good mental shape to be able to persist throughout this time? And the garden was where a lot of people turned to. I know I did. How much produce then has been donated through this app, Fresh Food Connect? Yeah, it's been a really cool year for us. Um, so we're seeing more participation than ever. And I think it's because of all of the combinations of these effects, right? So we're seeing um, more gardeners. First of all, we're seeing um, more hunger in our community and mm. seeing more concern over that, too. So it's been a great year. We um, we launched our new app, um, our new mobile application, back in the beginning of May. And we have over 700 folks that have downloaded the app hoping to participate in Fresh Food Connect. Um, we'll estimate that we'll get about 20,000 pounds of food donated by the end of the year. Say that again, 20,000? 20, 20,000. So far, we're, um, we just toppled over 30,000 since we started in one particular zip code, 80205 in Denver, Colorado. Now, I understand that gardeners can donate any amount of produce. Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Like if I have one zucchini or just a few cherry tomatoes? You so- should sign up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I started my garden. Um, the last pickup that I had was two and a half pounds. Um, so as Pamela was sharing and before in the sound clip, she's one of our total all-star gardeners who's been gardening with us for years now. Um yeah, two and a half pounds adds up. It's it's an exciting thing to see. You go through one neighborhood, you go through one zip code, and you look at this collective impact that we can make. And it's a table full of color um, and full of produce that people really have a connection with. It's some of the best quality food that you can get. It's a tomato picked off the vine same day. So, And each agency that signs up to use the app, you call them operators, mm-hmm. they decide when and how they'll pick up the produce. Yes. So we partner with some phenomenal organizations, um, Denver Food Rescue being one of um, about 13 groups across the state that we partner with. And um, we're blown away. So we really focus on working with organizations that aren't um, solely focused on the poundage of food going out the door, but also the nutritional quality of what's going out the door as well. Um, another addition to that is um, we work with organizations that are really run participatory structures where um, community members really have agency over how the food is going out. So Denver Food Rescue, Boulder Food Rescue is a really great example of this, where they run what they call no-cost grocery programs. Okay. And this is for community by community. So they identify community leaders maybe that are um, housed in Section 8 housing or are part of a Head Start or preschool program or Boys, Boys and Girls Club. And they ask the parents, they ask the residents, what's the best way to get this food out? And so it's really up to the community members how that happens, which is um, which is where we want to be supporting in our effort with Fresh Food Connect. As opposed to prescribing how this should work yeah. and making them fall in line. Exactly. Asking what they need. And of course, I think of fresh fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. being traditionally unavailable in food pantries, in part because they're not shelf stable. Is is that true? Is that a, a proper perception? Yeah, absolutely. So we see um, we see disproportional levels of preventable disease like diabetes type 2 and hypertension that are impacting um, communities facing food insecurity, again, with that disproportionate amount of people of color facing food insecurity. And so 
Um, what we see in traditional food banks and food pantries is, like you said, a lot of shelf-stable items. Mm-hmm. There's been a long history of kind of touting the amount of pounds of food going out the door rather than really talking about the health quality of what we're seeing go out the door. So Fresh Food Connect is partnering with organizations to make sure that, again, it isn't just the qu- the quantity of food, but it's really the quality that's supporting the whole well-being of our community members. But I, I think we have to be honest about the size of the need. Yes. And even with the bounty from backyard gardens, uh, that there's probably still a gap. I mean, you've been involved in hunger relief and food distribution for a long time. Can a food sharing app like Fresh Food Connect fill the gap alone? No, no. absolutely not. <laughs> So this is one this is one way for um, for us to participate in the procurement of healthy food items in frontline organizations that do, are doing hunger relief work. So I'm thinking about Denver Food Rescue. I'm thinking about the Good Food Collective out in Durango. I'm thinking about Mountain Roots and Gunnison and Metro Caring in Denver um, that we can support that procurement of healthy food items to make sure that again we're support, supporting the well-being of our community members. The whole well-being. That being said, um, I don't think it is the job of these hunger relief centers to solve the hunger problem. This is a systemic issue that we are really excited about engaging gardeners in this effort to support these organizations and then stepping into even more. So what does it look like for all of us to be participating in doting, donating our backyard bounty and then also showing up to the voting booths and thinking about living living wages, um, thinking about affordable housing, thinking about child care costs, and all of these different components that lead to hunger. Hunger is not even close to an isolated issue. Hmm. Uh, and so the idea is that gardeners, uh, when they have a bounty, can use this Fresh Food Connect app to connect with their local hunger relief mm-hmm. organizations. Helen, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Helen Katich is CEO of this nonprofit Fresh Food Connect. Still to come, a Fort Collins musician works through his climate grief. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Last year, Gail went to the hospital to deliver her first child. After nearly 30 hours in labor, she remembers what the nurse said after catching sight of a note in her medical chart from months earlier. She goes, I'm sending the umbilical cord and I'm putting cotton balls in your child's diaper to test for THC since she used it during pregnancy. The uncertain overlap of legal weed and policies meant to protect children on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Folk singer Woody Guthrie released Dust Bowl Ballads in 1940, which explored drought, dust storms, and mismanaged farmland. On the 14th day of April of 1935, there struck the worst of dust storms that ever filled the sky. You could see that dust storm coming. The cloud looked death like black And through our mighty nation It left a dreadful track Well, that album inspired our next guest, Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer. He wanted to write his own concept album, imagining songs that farmers might sing in the face of climate change. 
but Logan's debut morphed into a personal exploration of his own climate anxiety. Logan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. So your new album is called Still No Mother, and gosh, it debuts, of course, as wildfires rage in Colorado and a hurricane slams into the Louisiana coast. How's your climate anxiety right now? Uh, well, yeah, and then you, you forgot to mention the uh, global pandemic, too. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I forgot it. I've only I would forget the pandemic, but yes, indeed. Yeah, it's hard to forget. Uh-huh. How, how yeah, is your... Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant struggle, you know, um, and it's a, it's a difficult reality to live in. Um, I don't think that we can often comprehend it. So, I, you know, just like everybody else, you know, I get distracted and I watch the bad TV and I don't think about it for a while. And then I remind myself, I don't know, of that understanding. Do you think that this album was made in part to be, uh, for lack of a better term, preachy? I mean, is it that you want to make sure people redirect their attention to climate change? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think when I write, I like to pretend I have control over what I'm writing. Uh, But this particular record, I mean, it it turned into something that I didn't expect it to. And uh, I don't think it's preachy. I think it could be any... It could be any crisis that you're facing in life. It just so happened for me to be climate anxiety, which is something that I think, you know, we're all dealing with in our own ways. Yeah. And so this was very much a way for you to work through your own anxiety. We'll talk more about that. But here's the first track. It's called River Black. In some kind of protest, I know it's true. Paralyze each moment The woman is aged The river black When all my time's through Will you not say My name Each day So in that, we hear lyrics like, The home I knew is ash, the river black. Talk about prescient. My goodness. Why did you decide that this this tune should be the entry point of the album? Yeah, well, that was one of the first uh, songs I wrote. I knew that I wanted to write um, an album about climate change, but I didn't really know how to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and then I actually read this book by uh, Paul Kingsnorth, who's a... um, He's a, he's a fiction writer, but he also was an environmentalist. Um, and he wrote this book called Savage Gods about uh, kind of just writing being this ancient and kind of elemental force. Uh, and that kind of, I think, was a big inspiration for me. Um, this, this song just kind of came out of that. And um, it's kind of about, you know, trying to hold on to the present and trying to hold on to memories uh, psychologically while you stand on the precipice of this, you know, impending crisis. Um, which to me felt like a pretty good jumping off point for the rest of the record, uh, which is, of course, about, you know, living within that reality and understanding it because often there's almost like a self-defense mechanism that prevents us from really grasping uh, the reality of it. 
Yeah, and I think that sometimes it can feel so doomsday that you just want to... <sighs> you just want to hide your head in the sand. <laughs> Do you feel right. that yeah, sometimes? Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not, you know... I, I tried, especially when making this record, I really tried to to live every day completely aware of this. But, I mean, since, you know, I mean, everything that's happened this year... I mean, I wrote most of this record... Uh, in the summer of last year. Uh-huh. And so this year in particular, I've completely shut off from, I mean, for a little while I did, I'm a little, I'm kind of back to where I was now, but for a little while, those first couple months, I completely shut myself away um, from any of this stuff and just, uh, just kind of try to focus on self care. Uh, but that didn't, you know, it didn't stop the reality from being true. How did you realize that this wasn't going to be an album imagining other people's songs? Because you thought, gosh, maybe I will imagine what farmers would sing in the face of climate change. But it, it really became writing for your own catharsis. That, that was an evolution. Yeah, it was. Um, it was unintentional, for sure. And I think um, looking back at it now, you know, I, I don't think there is a lot of art that addresses um, the psychological ramifications of uh, the climate crisis. And so I think in that way, it's a little bit unique. Um, but it did, you know, it's, it's like I was kind of saying before, you don't really have much control when you actually sit down and start writing it, especially when you're living in it. Um, I've written a lot of, you know, more storytelling kind of songs before and more, um, you know, fictional characters. But this, something, this is something that just was really hitting home for me. Um, you know, it was just something that I've, I've, I've been a little obsessed with, with the climate crisis for a while now. So it was inevitable, I think. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer. His new album is called Still No Mother. And I wonder what sorts of decisions you've made in your life or changes you've made, choices you've made, Logan, around climate change. Like, what's what's been your decision about what your family should look like and stuff like that? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, um, it's one of those things that when you really, when you really get deep into it, you start to realize that everything you consume is, is you're kind of making an ethical decision. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I try to eat a completely plant-based diet, for instance, and I'm, I'm not having kids and all that, all that kind of fun stuff. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, every, every action you do helps, I think, but it is, you know, I think humans, we're just, we're natural consumers. Um, that's what we do. And so I think if you can try your best to ethically consume and to do the research, um, compost, all, all the stuff you could do, all the stuff that you are aware is out there, uh, just educate yourself and try to make ethical decisions. That's what I do, at least. And I'm not an expert by any means, but the information's out there. You know, you said almost in passing that you've decided not to have kids. Uh, is there yeah. grief in that? No, not at all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I feel totally comfortable with that. I just know that it's, um, for, for some, I, I guess it's, it's, it can be a touchy issue for some people. Uh-huh. Uh, for me, it was, it was the natural decision um, based on what I feel like the rest of the century is going to look like and what I feel like what, you know, the coming generations are going to experience. Um, I think it's just, it's, and I think for me, it was an ethical decision. There are many reasons to do it. Um, and there are many reasons to, you know, I've, I've heard the argument that, um, you know, I've heard the argument that we need to raise the next generation to be better and to do the, to the right thing. 
Um, but again, you know, I personally feel that it's we're natural consumers and we're just doing what we've always done and will always do. Um, yeah, kind I, of bleak. That's why I didn't go into it. It was a little bleak to talk about, but that's, that's kind of how I feel. Interesting you you call it bleak. I actually think it's a, a kind and generous reading of our nature and what we are up against in changing it. Uh, let, let's get back to the music here. We're getting so heady, Logan Farmer. <laughs> uh, a few of the songs on this new album also have music videos. You, you made a video for one track called Rome Through a Fog. So it is written I'm afraid of myself For listen I remain someone video there's a farmer tell, tell me about the farmer and what we see on screen okay yeah sure um so the, the video uh, was directed by my friend and, and frequent collaborator uh ben ward who's this he's an amazing um photographer and cinematographer here in fort collins but uh yeah no he um he spent some time in uh, eastern colorado he spent a couple of days with this cattle rancher that he was introduced to and um the video itself is, is essentially a uh it's almost like a mini documentary. It's just the, uh, the, the daily routine of this rancher. Um, and it's, it's yeah, 16 millimeter film, beautiful, almost has like a Terrence Malick uh, kind of look to it. But the, the video itself is very hyper-realistic. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's important to acknowledge this issue as not being something that's foreign or something that can just be discussed by, you know, scientists or like god forbid politicians but um it's it's a reality it's a reality that we're all living in and it's affecting all normal people and so i just wanted to show one of those normal people uh living their life and it, it's yeah it's, he, he did a beautiful job um in word is, is amazing this rancher i think he's in otis colorado do i have that right in washington county that's right yeah and is this a farmer concerned about climate change uh, you know, I, I haven't spoken with him about that oh. specifically. I think it's better to, to, to better to kind of picture it as um could be any any rancher or anybody, and maybe he's not concerned. I mean, maybe many people are not concerned, um, but that doesn't change the reality, um, nor like the kind of objective lens that we gave it. I think. Don't be so literal, Ryan. It's artistry, is what you're telling me, <laughs> Logan Farmer. Yeah, uh, sure. So uh, the last song on the album, No One Owes Us Anything, seems to be sort of the most direct when it comes to the theme of climate anxiety. Forty years later and there's no more ice I'm gonna end my days on a kitchen night Everything together better add up to a lot 
Say just a few words about this song. Yeah, um, yeah. So, like you said, that's the last track on the album, um, and it's kind of about uh, like the collective guilt that we share for what we've done to the planet. Um, and it's kind of it's a it comes from a place of kind of bitterness. It's kind of where I was, a little bit of resentment at the time. Um, and it's just kind of you know about how we may not deserve anything less than what we've been given. Oh. Um, yeah, we're not owed any type of quarter, you know, I mean, from this elephant in the room. Uh, yeah. You have a really lovely voice, and the instrumentation on this record is so lush. There are also field recordings on the album, and in fact, the album ends on the sound of seabirds and glacier chunks falling into the Atlantic. Yeah. I really feel transported when I listen. Do, do you think Woody Guthrie would approve? Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I, I, maybe, but you know, I think um, <laughs> he might. And you know, uh, I, I just I really wanted to because Woody Guthrie is obviously very direct storytelling, very literal uh, with the lyrics, especially I mean, in, in decibel ballads in particular. Um, and you know, I really wanted to avoid going any place too literal lyrically. Mm-hmm. Um, but incorporating those field recordings, um, that one in particular was from a trip to Iceland that I took last year. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, incorporating those kind of recordings, I think gave it a a natural element, um, that I think is poignant, especially towards the beginning of the, towards the end of the record. That is Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer. His debut album, Still No Mother, is out now. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If we lose our-